Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. This is Abstract, episode 68, coming at you right now. I'm joined by a very special guest who's joining us from across the country. He's none other than Jonathan Brassard, and he's here to talk to us all about stem cells and bioengineering. Before I say anything more, I'm going to let him tell us a bit more about himself. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hi, guys. Super happy to be here today. I'm Jonathan. I obtained my bachelor in chemical engineering at University of Laval and then did my master in bioengineering in Switzerland. Two years ago, I joined Prof. Karim Nursley at McGill in biomedical engineering, and I'm now working on combining stem cell biology and device engineering to try treating uh, type 1 diabetes. When I'm not in the lab tending to my very needy stem cells, you can find me hiking, climbing, or, or taking pictures of cute animals that I encounter during my outdoors <laughs> adventures. That's great. So from what I understand, you're actually out in BC right now, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's a huge collaboration, this project. So at McGill, I'm mostly working on the engineering side. And here I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking to learn as much as I can about stem cell biology and how to get these pancreatic cells going. I'm fascinated by the idea of using stem cells in research. So before we get into that, why are you studying what you're studying? What drew you to bioengineering in the first place? And what do you get out of it? I'm really excited about all the research going on in medicine and how you can apply it. But I think that more and more as we go into more complex biology, we need also engineers that can translate these products. And we are at a fascinating time in science history, especially in bioengineering, where you have this multidisciplinary work that needs to be done between biology, stem cells, and more complex engineering methodology like device design, uh, bioprinting, and so on. Do you find most people that you work with in this extremely large collaboration also have interdisciplinary backgrounds? Or do you deal with people who are kind of experts in their own domain, and then everybody collaborates with their own expertise? You know, it's a little bit of both. So we're working with clinician, engineer, biologist. Everyone has a little bit of a niche domain, I would say. And then, you know, you, you still need a, a little bit of understanding of what everyone's doing. And I think everyone whom I'm collaborating with have these understanding as well. Uh, but they for sure have their niche specialty as well. So if you're doing the bio side and the engineering side, what would you say you're more known for in the community? What do people come well, to you for? I wouldn't for? say I'm known for, but uh, I, think, I think it would be, again, the interface in between the biology and engineering. It's quite, quite this nascent field, right? And sure. there's really a possibility to distinguish yourself in, in, in this combination of fields. Uh -huh. And so stem cell research was kind of the, the, the perfect place to apply both of those interests and expertise. Yeah. What drew you to stem cell research? How'd that come together? Well, I think stem cells, especially when I was younger, you know, they were very mysterious. Now we know a little bit more about them, but there's still mm -hmm. uh, so much unknown. And I think for regenerative medicine purposes, it's the power of stem cells, their potential and promises that drew me to the field. We're going to see how much of this we can CEC coming to life in the in the future years. So what is a stem cell? How is it different from the cells that make up my skin, the cells that make up, let's say, the rods and the cones in my eye that, you know, detect light? 
How are stem cells different? So, so stem cells are different in the sense that they are pluripotent. So they can differentiate into many, many different cells. So they're kind of a, a prime cells that you have initially, for example, in the embryo. And these cells have the potential to give rise to all these cells in all of your organs. And then at different point in the life of the stem cells, you'll restrict this lineage potential. And then some stem cell, for example, if you think about eye stem cells, then these mm -hmm. eye stem cells will only be able to make rod and cons and other cells that are found in the eyes. So you have initially stem cells that are pluripotent, so they can really form any tissues and contribute to any cell type in the body. And then you have more multipotent stem cells that are already committed to some lineage or some organs, and then they can still differentiate it or trans be transformed into cells of that particular organ, many different types of cells. Yeah, That's really cool. Do the pluripotent turn into the multipotent? So like in the embryo, does everything start off yeah. as so pluripotent? Generally, what, what we see in biology mostly is this timeline when you're progressively restricting the potential of stem cells. So they start pluripotent, they become multipotent, and then they can even become so, something we call progenitor cells, where they are rapidly expanding and they can still have a little bit of potency, but mostly they are restricted to one specific type of cells or a few specific type of cells. Yeah. Sure. So potency here refers to kind of like the the option space. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Okay. As opposed to like potency of a smell. Yeah, I know. If we say a smell is potent, we don't mean that it can smell like a lot of different things. We mm -hmm. mean that it, it smells a lot like one thing. So here it's like the opposite. Yeah, it's more potential, it, I think. It probably derives oh, from it. That's a great... I, I didn't make that connection. Potent as in potential. Excellent. So what is telling the stem cells to differentiate? Is it just in the DNA? Like, are, do we even know what that catalyst is? Okay, so that's a, a very hard question, and it's a question that people are trying to answer. So, okay. uh, of course, there's a lot of lot of it in the genes, but mostly the environment that the cells are evolving in will give them directions. So these cells, they sense all the many cues that they are exposed to. So it could be some mechanical tension, it could be some chemical signaling, biological molecules, it could be some some chemicals all of it, the cells will integrate it, process it, and then make decision based on this. So of course, some of the, uh, of the decision, you know, are based on gene, but all the environment. So your cells, depending on where you put it, will give you a completely different outcome. I've always loved in the study of biology, how at the level of people, we have cognitive processes. We engage with our environment, we, we perceive and then we act, we make meaning of our environment. But even at the, at the cellular level, you have cells making meaning from their environment, not in a cognitive way, but in a chemical way. And so there's still, there's a certain awareness of their environment. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. They're, they're reading their environment and they're reacting to it. And that's why, why it's so complex, because initially we thought these biological molecules that other cells secrete is what's going to direct your cells. But more and more, as we go into bioengineering uh, modalities, we, we uncover this whole world where physics is super important as well. All the mechanical uh, forces that the cells, they're able to sense mechanics as well and integrate this with the biological, with the chemical cues to really create a very complex sensory environment. That's awesome. I, I'm a big proponent of interdisciplinarity 
And to hear physics and chemistry and biology in the same sentence is a, a beautiful thing. <laughs> so stem cells can differentiate. We've spoken about this before. But from what I understand, there's also this flip side where they can kind of self-organize. Yeah. So how does, how does that kind of complement the differentiation? Basically, when the cells are making decisions, they are evolving inside an environment. And this potential of self-organization is with minimal initial cues. The stem cells can divide, and as they divide, they can also differentiate. So, um, for example, if you put stem cells in any environment in the mouse directly, uh, they might form a tumor. Uh, and then the tumor will grow with some weird tissue in different aspects. And e even if the gene is the same, every tumor will look different. So these stem cells, they can go on a program and evolve continuously to generate specific tissues. So the job of a bioengineer here is to be able to control a little bit this self-organization potential. Different kind of cells, as I've said, depending on if they're restricted, multipotent, pluripotent, uh, they can have different potential for self-organization. One example for that is organoids. Uh -huh. in, in recent years, uh, you've probably seen lots of uh, title with organoids, people using growing mini organs in the lab sure. and so on. And that's mostly based on self-organization. So you take pluripotent stem cells and you coerce them into differentiating towards one specific lineage in general. For example, if I take the work I did during my master, we were using intestinal stem cells. Mm -hmm. And these intestinal stem cells, when you put them into some condition, they can form the same or very similar architecture as what you find in vivo. So they will expand and then fold and create crypts where the stem cells will be in the crypts and then differentiated cells will be around them. As biologists, it's very interesting because these cells have an intrinsic program to do these kinds of morphogenesis, to go through all the differentiation step and the mechanics to fold and to create these more complex organs that are reminiscent of what's happening in vivo. That's insane. You dropped a, a term there, morphogenesis, just meaning like producing different structures? Yeah, exactly. Changing forms. So they are themselves able to create new forms, you know, that are based a little bit on their gene and also based on their environment and the cues that they are interpret. So if you try to artificially replicate like a human brain, for example, that was, I don't know, maybe like a, a meter, like about three feet in diameter, the time it would take for a neuron on one side of the brain to communicate a message across to the other side would be longer than if the brain was the current size that it is. So I'm curious, are these mini organs, these, these organoids faithful to the real thing? What's, what's gained or what's lost when mm. we recreate an organ at a smaller scale? So initially, most of the stem cell biology was done in 2D, where you have some oh. cells that are plated in very hard tissue plastics. People have been doing uh, great science, obviously, but you're very limited as to how functional these cells can be and how they can mimic uh, what's happening in vivo. Mm -hmm. Going to the 3D space, basically, you give much more flexibility or freedom to the cells to do what they do best. And that's self-organized into complex structure based on their genetic program and also on their environment. The difference here is that now we can model some architecture and some function of these organs and in a way that is very similar to what you would see in your bigger organ. It's just smaller. 
For example, if you look at the intestinal organoid, your sure. intestine is a big cylinder, you know, meter long, and uh, the wall is very complex where you see differentiated cells and stem cell that resides in the crypt. But as you reproduce this in vitro, they are only millimeter size organoids. So they grow as a little sphere. And then in this sphere, the wall of the sphere will still have this kind of crypt villi axis where you see you can find the stem cell and you can find the more differentiated cells. Uh, in the intestine, these differentiated cells, uh, one of their main role is to absorb nutrients and so on. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it because they're the real deal. You know, they, they are the right cells from the patient that comes from the stem cells of the patient, for example, or, or for the stem cell of the animals. So you create this little sphere of intestine. Exactly. But because the intestinal wall of this little sphere is pretty much like a, a really good analog for the real thing, you can, let's say, put it in like a bath of nutrients and it, and it will do the absorption. Exactly. So you can start to do disease modeling. You can start to do drug screening that are much more representative of what would happen in vivo. You know? So you can kind of start to do either personalized medicine if you derive these mini organs from the patient themselves, uh, or you can do some more... <laughs> biology screening and to see how it affects biological process in your organoids using different molecules, using different mechanical forces and so on and so on. I just got the chills when you said that you could use people's own cells to do like drug testing on them. That's the craziest thing. Like you could go into my intestine, take the stem cells that you're saying are kind of hidden in, in these little crypts and folds, and then you can bring that into a Petri dish and then see how it reacts. And that will be that that will indicate maybe to some degree how the drug will react in my own body. Is that something that you're working on right now? No, that's not something I'm doing, but that's exactly right. That's something people are doing. So um, that's crazy. For example, especially I think it's a huge field in in cancer where they go into, for example, colon cancer. They go take a small biopsy of your cancer. There are intestinal cancerous stem cells in the biopsy they're taking. Then they're establishing an organoid culture in the lab in vitro where they will expand colon cancer organoids that are similar to the disease you could potentially have, right? And then uh, they can tr test many different drug, chemotherapy treatment, and so on. And then they can see kind of wh what kind of molecules are the most effective against this specific kind of cancer for you. That's the whole era of personalized medicine. And I think, again, stem cell can be very, very, very powerful here. That's amazing. This is, this is research currently being done, and I assume it'll become more widespread the more that we test, the more that we develop. Yeah. So for now, it, it, sounds, it sounds pretty groundbreaking. Like this is, this is cutting edge. This isn't something where you can just walk into your, into your average hospital and say, hi, I, I would like you to remove some stem cells from my intestines, please. Yeah, no, no. Obviously, uh, it, it is happening, I think, at the clinical level, but it's always, to my knowledge, in combination with some lab that are doing uh, some clinical trial basically to mm -hmm. to see the the value of these predictive treatments it's it's quite costly when when you're getting into personalized medicine so that will be a huge sure. challenge to overcome if we want this to be uh, generalized to everyone okay so all of this this 3d spherical organoid stuff sounds very cool but what's next there are a few problems with these spherical organoids the first one is that they are very random so uh, every organoids will look completely different uh, some will have a few crypts, some will have many crypts. Sometimes some of them will die. You also have problem with, in your intestine, you know, you're shedding constantly dead cells in your intestine that are excreted. 
by your normal way of life. But when you have a spherical contained organoids, you basically accumulate dead cell until it will burst or destroy the organoids. Oh. Um, so the next step is kind of how do we get to more physiological organs? You know, how can we increase robustness in these organoids? How can we bridge the scale? Because these ones are super small, right? It's still hundreds of microns, few millimeters maybe, but how, how do we get to the centimeter slash meter scales of the organs? And what I was working on during my master was bioprinting and trying to combine bioprinting with uh, stem cell. We've developed a technology where you can directly use the organoids and print them to form bigger structures. Normally in classical bioprinting paradigm, you were trying to print kind of a scaffold around the cells to really control them. What we're doing here is a little bit different. We're positioning the cells in an environment where they can organize themselves in more complex structure. So basically by using bioprinting, mm -hmm. now we can form small intestinal tubes that are a centimeter uh, scale. I thought before you were saying that we haven't yet figured out how to make these like centimeter long organoids, but you're saying that you can. Yes, well, I mean, initially when you do the classical organoids uh, and you're not using bioengineering approach to enhance them, they are spherical. So they're growing as aggregates or sphere or enteroids, or they have many names. Uh, but if you want to bridge the scales, you need some biofabrication technologies. And that's where the okay. engineers come in. That's where really one part of the bioengineering field is so interesting to me, at least. It's how you can use engineering technologies to develop the new models. So the next generation of tissue models for disease, for screening, to question biology, and so on. So what we're doing is to print directly these stem cells, but in an environment where they can still self-organize and they can still uh, create these crypts and villi and differentiation processes. By giving them some restraint and some cues by controlling how they see their environment, we can force them to develop into certain shapes. So for for the stem cell, free will does not exist. When Jonathan Brassard is behind the the microscope, there is no free will for these cells. You tell them what to do, you put them where they go, and that's it. Well, that's not exactly true. So we're really going in between no freedom and total freedom. Okay. So in classical organoids, they have almost total freedom and they do whatever they want. <laughs> and then they form <laughs> like bratty teens. Dolls and, exactly. And then if you give them too much restriction, then they won't be able to make all this complex organization because you you'll have either a scaffold around them that prevent them to to create these scripts, to folds and everything. So you need to be kind of in between where you give them some cues that are important for what you want to do. For example, creating a tube rather than sphere, mm -hmm. but you still let them go do what they do best at the micro scale. So the macroscopic centimeter scale architecture or geometry, we design, we decide, we force them to, to do a tube basically. But uh -huh. the micro scale feature that is so complex and, and that even the best bioprinter would not have enough resolution to do, you're using the potential of stem cell to self-organize into complex structure, into complex geometry at the micro scale, and you're letting them do what they do. 
I like how you're kind of like a parent to these stem cells. Like, yeah. there, there's, a, there's a, a lot of analogies that can be drawn here in terms of like child rearing. How if you're a helicopter parent, your children won't be able to develop into like full cultured people. But if you give them too much freedom, then they might go down the wrong path. So you really got to strike that balance. I think it's a beautiful thing. That's a good analogy. It's perfect. Yeah. Cool. So now I have a good idea of some of your master's research on the stem cells and the organoids. Super cool stuff. From what I understand now, you're working on the pancreas and type 1 diabetes. So these seem like somewhat different lines of research. I myself, and I'm sure many listeners don't know too much about the pancreas specifically. I did have a guest on the show, uh, Miriam Talbo, on episode 40, where we spoke about diabetes. So let's maybe talk about, we'll just start off with an introduction to the pancreas. So the pancreas is one of these organs that has two functions. So you have the exocrine pancreas and the endocrine pancreas. The exocrine pancreas is, is main role is to secrete all the different enzymes that helps you digest food and so on. And the endocrine pancreas is mainly composed of different little organs within the pancreas that are called islets of Langerhans. And within these islets, you have different cells, beta cells, alpha cells, delta cells, and all of them secrete different hormones that will help you regulate glucose. The main one, the beta cells, are the one responsible to secrete insulin. And this insulin will help you to have the muscle to uh, uptake the glucose in your blood, for example, to use for energy and so on. And that's why when you have type 1 diabetes, your own beta cells are either not able to function properly or have been destroyed by your own immune system. The lack of insulin, the lack of beta cell, is why type 1 diabetes patient needs to have insulin injection daily to be able to regulate their glucose. So up until now, what is like the main way that we've been handling this? Aside from injection, this is a daily thing. Do we have any other treatments like that are kind of more, more large scale, like a transplant or something like that? Yeah. There are two ways to kind of try to treat or cure diabetes right now. One is still with insulin injection, but something that is uh, completely automatized. So you have basically this little robot with the uh, artificial pancreas, they call it, that will inject insulin and monitor your blood glucose level. So this is more electrical engineering kind of way. And then what I'm really interested in is, is more the biological aspect where we're trying to replace the beta cells that have been destroyed. One of the state-of-the-art clinical transplantation protocol that can be done is to take the whole pancreas from cadaveric donors, disrupt it and digest it using enzymes and, and different mechanical treatment to get to these little islets that I've talked about a little bit earlier. And when you have these islets that contains the beta cells and other cells that regulates your blood glucose level, you purify them a little and then you inject them in the patient. Mm -hmm. And these beta cells that you've just injected into uh, the patient will be able to take on the role that your beta cells were previously doing and regulate your blood glucose level. Using this transplant approach combined with chronic immunosuppression, so this is when you will have a cocktail of drugs that you will take throughout your life to suppress your immune system so that they don't destroy the transplant. People have been able to go on without the diabetes complication for several years. Unfortunately, wow. eventually this transplant wind down so the cells are either exhaust or die and you will have some of the complication from the diabetes that will resurface. Okay, so this whole process of harvesting beta cells and harvesting these islets of Langerhans from the cadaver, from the donor, 
this transplant isn't then immune from the response. It isn't immune from the immune response of, of your body then. So they end up getting attacked as well. Yeah, exactly. So obviously this is not a treatment that is optimal because when you're immune suppressed, you can get other disease very easily mm -hmm. and it complicates a lot your lifestyle afterwards. What we're trying to do basically is to find another way to shield or to protect these islets using biomaterial, using biomedical device that we can implant in the patient to protect these islets, so the cell transplant from the patient's immune system, so that the cells can still do their job, can still regulate the blood glucose and secrete insulin, but without having to fear constantly the immune system. So how are we protecting these cells? Do we kind of put a chastity belt over them and then just wag our finger? Like, how do we really regulate that at that level? So at that level, what we're trying to do is to prevent the immune cells to directly access to the cells. In general, you have your immune cells that will go around in your body and they will see your islets and they'll realize this is foreign material. It's not our body. It should not be there. Let's destroy it. And then they will attack your beta cells, your islets, and they will slowly destroy them. So what we're trying to do is to put some kind of mesh around it. It could be some different biomaterial or a little pouch, you know, where you put the islets in there and then you prevent the immune system to be able to directly contact these cells and destroy them. Okay. So the generality you're speaking in, is it purely to save me from an extremely complicated explanation? Or is it really that this is like, this is the cutting edge right now. We're still trying to figure out exactly what these biomaterials are. Well, there are many, many different ways that you can do this. So some people, for example, they craft very small membranes with different holes in there. So uh, the little holes will prevent the immune cells to reach your islets, but you want the liquid, you want the insulin, and you want the glucose to be able to go through this membrane easily. Uh, mm -hmm. So then it becomes a trade-off between how much protection we can provide to these islets without disrupting processes such as diffusion, where you want the glucose to go to the islets as fast as possible, and you want the insulin mm -hmm. to go out as fast as possible. Because Got it's it. very important, right? When you take a meal, when you... Uh, your blood glucose is increasing, you want your islets to be able to sense it in a timely manner and then react to it in a timely manner. But if you physically close them off from the circulation, then there's no point having the islets there to begin with because they won't be able to do their job. So it's kind of a trade-off between efficacy and, and security. Exactly. That's tough. That's, that's tough stuff. Are you worried? Are you worried that you won't find an answer, that, that, that we won't be able to... To, to find a way to actually implement this on a larger scale, that you're gonna to have to trash a whole project, or are you quite optimistic about the research developments here? I, I, I guess I would hope the latter if you're doing your PhD on it, but I'll let you speak to the rest. No, no, I think, yeah, I think we're making great progress, not, not just in our lab, but also in many different labs. It's a blooming field. There are so many researchers working on what we call encapsulation of cells to protect them from immune system. People are testing so many different materials, so many different geometry, different pore size, different ways to encapsulate the cells. I'm quite optimistic. I don't know if I'll be the one coming up with the solution, but for sure it's going to help someone come with a cure at some point. Sure. Well, so this is the beginning of your PhD now. How, how, how deep in are you? So I've been two years in, but obviously okay. with COVID, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit slower than, than, than we, uh -huh. we, we like. 
Um, 1.8. Yeah, exactly. But we we're making some great progress. So we have a, a biomedical prototype where you can put the cells in, they survive, they like it. So uh, <laughs> they I, like it. I love that. You take it a survey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you survey them mostly for if they're alive or if they're dying. <laughs> Okay, so, and if they're alive, they're loving it. Well, yeah. there are some <laughs> other things, but um, the the first part in uh, device development for these kind of things would be to make sure that the cells survive in it so that they have enough nutrients diffusing to survive, basically. And then the next step is to make sure that they are protected also from, from immune cells that would be externally added. Mm-hmm. This is This is really cool. And in really small-scale applications of these kinds of technologies, I always wonder how widely applicable they would be to other bodily systems. So is this the kind of thing where, you know, beta cells only exist in the pancreas, for example, and all of everything you're working on is hyper-specific to the pancreas? Or could your research relatively easily be extended to work on problems in other organs in the body? So the beta cells are exclusive to the pancreas. Uh-huh. However, what we are developing is an encapsulation system, an encapsulation device that will protect cells from immune system. So we could easily think about protecting other cells from immune rejection or immune activation. Uh, for example, we could have other hormones producing cells from hormone disorder, for example. And then if you want to, again, use cell therapy to deliver these hormone producing cells to a patient, but you don't want to have the patient beyond uh, immunosuppressive treatment for, for its whole life, then it could be useful to protect the cells from it. Do you think we'll ever fuse the two things that we spoke about today? So one was actually transplanting, kind of d- digesting someone else's pancreas and then harvesting the islets and implanting those to get the beta cells and the alpha cells and the delta cells? Or are we going to do maybe like some, some stem cell proliferation and actually produce all these cells from stem cells and inject them that way. Which path did you see us following? Well, that's a very good question. I think in the short term, the cadaveric donor is quite efficient because these cells, they're working as soon as you implant them. So one oh, other right. part of the project that I'm working on, the reason I'm in Vancouver right now, is to take these stem cells and to transform them into beta cells and then try to either use them as a transplantation mean or to put them in our device. But these stem cells, they're not exactly equal to adult human beta cells. So they're a little bit less efficient. Sometimes um, most protocols that have been done in research currently, these cells, when they're implanted, they're not absolutely perfectly functional as soon as you mm-hmm. implant them. It takes a little time for them to mature in the body before they can really regulate blood glucose at physiological level. So the research is there. I think we're going to get there for sure. But in the short term, it might be more promising to go for adult cadaveric islets than stem cell derived islets. Cool. Well, I look forward to revisiting your project in a couple of years when you're further down the line, as long as COVID doesn't shut everything down again. I think it'd be really cool to see how this story plays out. So it's really, really interesting that I've caught you towards kind of beginning, heading towards middle of the PhD research. That's great. So I want to close this off with just one final question. It's been amazing so far. Thank you. What do you think you were put on this earth to do? What do you think the biggest contribution to the world you could make would be on either a big or a small scale? It's a strong thing. Why you're put to earth to do. Okay. Um... <laughs> you just got to commit. You know. You yeah, yeah. Great, great question. Great question. Um... 
I've been put on her to enjoy my time here. That would be my first thing, you know, uh, and I enjoy sure. doing science. As to the contribution, uh, I'm currently set on the path to become an academic researcher myself and to uh, eventually open my own lab. And I think the best contribution to the field you can do is to, you know, just contribute to this collaborative effort to progress science. And then all the people I'll train, uh, all the research will do as a as a general cumulative thing, you know, would be uh, my, my best contribution, probably. Honestly, that makes complete sense to me. Totally logical. The fact that you're currently part of, I think you specifically said, a, a massive scientific undertaking with this group you're working with. It makes sense that you see yourself wanting to build a community. And I think that's an extremely important part of doing science. So community and collaboration. It's a wonderful thing. Great answer. Thank you so much, Jonathan. This was really great. I'm really glad that we got to revisit the topic of diabetes and also get a deep insight into the world of stem cell research as well. I kind of had a multifaceted feel today. So I'm really grateful to have had you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure, really. Good discussion. You're very welcome. Happy to have you back on down the line as well to see how your life plays out and see why you think you were put on this earth. We'll see if your idea changes. So thank you so much. Have an awesome rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.